Welcome to New Dimension, where we examine how some of the video game industry's biggest franchises transitioned from 2D to 3D. Many don't realize it, but Kirby is one of the most powerful characters in Nintendo's universe. With his ability to use his enemies' powers against them, he's also one of the most versatile. Too bad the same thing can't be said about his video games. Going back more than a decade to the Super Nintendo, Kirby's mainline releases have been stagnant. And since Kirby's return to Dreamland for the Wii, the core games have included little variation. The Kirby catalog is flush with 2D platformers built around his copy abilities. They are generally designed to be easy and often include cooperative play as a main feature. Kirby isn't a complete stranger to being constructed with polygons. He's built that way for Kirby 64, the crystal shards for Nintendo 64. But the gameplay still operates on a classic 2D plane for what's known as 2.5D. Spin-offs like Kirby's Air Ride and Kirby's Tilt and Tumble allow him to move in 3D space, but he's never appeared in a platformer where you have full 360-degree freedom of control. Until now, anyway, with Kirby and the Forgotten Land for Nintendo Switch. It's not only a full 3D platformer, but it also adds other tenets of modern gaming like upgrades and optional missions. Has it strayed too far from its 2D roots? Or has Nintendo found a smart way to finally bring this classic series into the third dimension? The objective in almost every Kirby game is to save Dreamland, or some other analog world he gets transported to. Usually there's some evil cosmic being standing in his way. He also has a list of rivals that somehow find him no matter where he goes. He must defeat characters like Meta Knight and King DDD in almost every game, but the reasoning is often paper thin. Either they've been brainwashed, or they just feel the need to test the little pink puffball. Kirby games always have a cheerful, dayglow aesthetic that belies its surprisingly dark plots. Simple premises aside, the classic 2D Kirby games don't have much overt storytelling. There's typically an opening cutscene to set up the plot, short vignettes at the beginning of each world to set the stage, and then another cutscene when the true antagonist is revealed. There isn't a lot of exposition or wordy conversations in any of them. Kirby Superstar adds a lot more explicit storytelling into some of its later sub-games, while the modern Kirby games add grander cutscenes and more involved premises without becoming overly complex. Kirby and the Forgotten Land follows a similar path to Kirby's other games. A mysterious portal opens up on planet Popstar, sucking Kirby, his allies, and everyday objects into a new dimension that looks a whole lot like a post-apocalyptic Earth. A band of intelligent animals known as the Beast Pack has taken over, and they quickly capture all the Waddle Dees, some of the longest-running creatures in the Kirby universe. They are typically his enemies and pawns of King DDD, but here they are allies he must rescue. The Waddle Dees also set up a town for Kirby to unlock supplies and upgrades. This new investment in the game setting is a big shift when locations in prior games have been little more than a backdrop. The Forgotten Land also includes a lot more dialogue than most Kirby games. Both the inhabitants of the town and Kirby's new mouse-like friend are extremely chatty, while Kirby himself remains a silent protagonist. There is no real voice acting in these conversations, but it's at least a step towards making Kirby and crew feel like actual characters. The storytelling structure follows a similar path found in Kirby's prior games. There are a couple cutscenes right at the beginning to establish the setting, characters, and friction, 
but not much after that until two-thirds of the way through, where an incident changes the focus. Then, in the final act, things move very quickly with several twists. This erratic exposition results in the player focusing heavily on its gameplay for huge stretches of the campaign, and makes the forgotten land unbalanced. If you can think of a kid-friendly type of game, Kirby has probably starred in one. Even the mainline releases cover a wide spectrum of platforming design. Some are straightforward platformers where the only goal is to get from the beginning of each level to the end and the only hidden secrets are occasional health items or power-ups. On the other end of the spectrum, there are games where exploration and finding secrets are the main thrust. Kirby's Superstar for the SNES is unique among Kirby games in that it consists of five discrete games all running on the same engine. They truly run the gamut of design, with the simplest being Spring Breeze, a condensed remake of the already short Kirby's Dreamland. It serves as the tutorial and includes few secrets. Meta Knight's Revenge is one of the tougher, more involved games, but it's also straightforward since it's story-focused and institutes a timer. Dynablade is more complex since it focuses on Kirby's various abilities and uses a world map, but it's extremely linear and only includes a couple secret areas. Milky Way Wishes is a major step up, as Kirby has to find permanent ability power-ups rather than absorbing them from enemies. Finally, the Great Cave Offensive is entirely focused on finding treasure. It actually allows you to rush to the end, but you'll miss whole areas and one of the four worlds entirely. It's one of the first signs of flexibility in how you complete a Kirby video game. The other SNES Kirby game, Kirby's Dream Land 3, goes even farther in hiding its secrets. The level design is not complex if you want to just reach the end, but to unlock the game's true ending, you must complete a specific task in each one, like watering flowers, collecting secret items, completing mini-games, and more. These tasks can either be obvious or arcane, and some in the later levels can be surprisingly difficult. At this point, we are starting to see a shift in focus for the franchise. From this point forward, most of the Kirby games will follow this template. Various MacGuffins are hidden in each level, though most are barely off the beaten path or obviously signposted. Kirby and the Forgotten Land mostly leans into this trope with its MacGuffin of choice, the missing Waddle Dees. The levels themselves are built similarly to the majority of other Kirby platformers. They are comprised of mostly linear paths with branches accessed via one-way doors or warp stars. You also have to complete all the main levels in a predetermined order. Some of the later levels do start to experiment with this formula, having you double back on the same path while navigating new obstacles. One later level even approximates a fully open space. It's a tantalizing glimpse into what a true 3D Kirby game can be. However, not all the Waddle Dees are just tucked away on some hard-to-find piece of virtual land. Some are hidden by tasks you must discover on your own via experimentation, like collecting certain items, defeating enemies in a certain way, or not making mistakes. Some of the tasks do pop up as you play, but others are nearly impossible to figure out your first time through and are only explained in the level completion screen. You don't need to collect all the hidden Waddle Dees to reach the end of the game, but they do stand as the gatekeeper to move into new levels and act as a nice bonus for completionists or players looking for extra challenge. 
Speaking of challenge, extra modes have become a staple of the Kirby series, whether it's boss rushes, speedrun options, or challenge rooms. Most Kirby games save the more difficult challenges for the post-game, but Kirby and the Forgotten Land cleanly integrates the options into the primary campaign. You can switch between the Spring Breeze, a nod to the easiest game in Kirby Superstar, and Wild Mode difficulty settings at any time. Wild Mode adds more enemies and gives Kirby a smaller health bar. There are also optional treasure room levels scattered around the overworld map. These challenges sometimes only last a handful of seconds, but they test your combat and puzzle-solving skills. Completing a treasure room gives you the currency you need to unlock new ability upgrades. There's also a boss rush mode called the Colosseum that unlocks halfway through the campaign and plays a bit of a role in the story. The main game isn't especially challenging, but the options are there to provide a bit more resistance, even if you're playing through it for the first time. Kirby and the Forgotten Land is the first mainline Kirby game with an economy to consider. Minor collectibles aren't new to the franchise, but they typically exist to earn either points or extra lives. Instead, the star coins in Forgotten Land are used to buy power-ups, collectible figures, and upgrades to Kirby's copy abilities. These upgrades also require a much more rare collectible called, oddly enough, Rare Stones that you earn from treasure rooms or the Colosseum. Ultimately, if you want to complete the game 100%, it can surprisingly become a grind. This is something Kirby games have never been in the past. Kirby's platformers have been defined by his ability to puff up and hover since the very beginning. The floaty nature of controlling Kirby essentially trivializes most of the pure platforming and creates a gigantic margin for error. Part of that can be mitigated by level design, where enemies can also fly and there are obstacles that must be avoided all over the screen. Kirby Superstar is a good example of this, especially since Kirby himself is a relatively large sprite compared to the protagonists of other platformers like Mario. Regardless, the basic platforming in 2D Kirby games is easier than other examples of the genre. With the move to 3D, Kirby and the Forgotten Land places limits on Kirby's hovering. He can only hover a certain distance above the highest platform he's passed over. This means Kirby can't completely circumvent the platforming by essentially flying over all the obstacles. Like in Kirby 64, he also tires out after hovering for a few seconds and has to touch the ground eventually. There are a lot of walls to maneuver around including physical walls, temporary walls that lock Kirby into boss battle arenas, and myriad invisible walls that generally stop him from going out of bounds. The big gameplay twist in Kirby and the Forgotten Land is Mouthful Mode. Kirby can suck up everyday objects like soda machines, traffic cones, and cars before wrapping himself around them and taking control. These new forms are completely separate from his normal copy abilities, and they are mostly context-sensitive and designed for very specific parts of each level. There's no hovering in Mouthful Mode, and taking on any of these new forms does not make Kirby invincible. Most forms come with a very specific but simplified moveset that the player must learn on the fly. Kirby's ability to suck up his enemies and use their powers against them has been fundamental to the franchise since its second release, Kirby's Adventure for the NES. In many of the early games, each copy ability only has a single attack, but each subsequent game finds a different way to augment that total. The Dreamland games let you team up with animal buddies. 
Kirby 64 lets you combine each of the seven copy abilities with any other copy ability to create unique powers. Kirby Superstar goes a different direction. Similar to a fighting game, it provides a full moveset for each copy ability. Some combine previous abilities into one moveset, while others are entirely new. This system of deep copy abilities is the template for modern Kirby games, as well as designer Masahiro Sakurai's other project, Super Smash Bros. It imbues the copy ability system with a lot of flexibility and allows you to find one you really like and stick with it for the bulk of play. At first, Kirby and the Forgotten Land appears to take a step backwards. There are only 12 base copy abilities, and two of them are single use. Each copy ability only has a couple attacks as well, mostly consisting of a base attack, an air attack, and maybe a charge attack. However, as part of the game's economy, you can upgrade copy abilities into new forms, which ultimately leads to 36 total variants. But that number is deceiving since the majority simply upgrade the power of an existing ability. It's a flimsy attempt at bloating Kirby's abilities and a massive downgrade compared to Kirby's most recent 2D releases, which have around double that amount. Bringing Kirby into 3D presents unique challenges. Since he's round, it's more difficult to tell which direction he's facing since his profile is essentially the same no matter which angle you view him from. This creates some major issues when trying to attack enemies, and it's double trouble since many of Kirby's abilities involve throwing projectiles. To help remedy this, Nintendo has applied a light auto-aim to all his attacks, but the biggest tweak involves the camera. If it looks like an attack should land from a given camera angle, it does. Even if the actual objects are far apart, it can be very generous. Local cooperative play has been a staple of Kirby's games since Kirby Superstar, where he can turn his ability into a friendly enemy that can be controlled by either the AI or another human player. Kirby's Dream Land 3 takes a different approach with Gooey, a partner who can also eat enemies and then use their abilities. Recent console games expand to four-player co-op. Kirby Star Allies goes all in on the concept, letting you utilize both Kirby's friends and enemies. Kirby and the Forgotten Land includes just two-player co-op in its move to 3D. Extra players also have just one character to select and can only use a simple spear attack. Because 3D games must either render the world separately for each player with a split-screen approach or pull the camera way back to use one screen for all players, there are technical limitations that keep four players from happening. It's a significant downgrade that can be almost completely blamed on the franchise's shift to 3D. Despite being just a pink ball, Kirby games somehow managed to employ a wide variety of graphical styles throughout the years. His games also sometimes push technical boundaries since they often appear late in a console's lifespan. Even on the SNES, his two platformers have wildly different styles. Kirby Superstar is full of strong, vibrant colors and expressive animations. Kirby's Dreamland 3 looks like a crayon drawing paired with impressive 16-bit visual effects like convincing transparency. Kirby is considered a late bloomer on Nintendo 64. The series' final release on the Super Nintendo, Kirby's Dreamland 3, comes a full year after the Nintendo 64 is on the market. To be fair, Kirby 64, The Crystal Shards, is one of the very first examples of a 2.5D game, meaning a game that's built with polygons but still plays on a mostly 2D plane. 
It even includes a rotating camera to provide some depth perception at times, a trick still employed in modern development in new 2.5D games. Kirby 64's graphics also employ a handcrafted, clay-styled look, but it will be another decade of 2D handheld games before Kirby returns to polygonal visuals. Traditional Kirby platformers won't return to consoles at all until Kirby's Return to Dreamland in 2011, which finally reinstates the 2.5D graphical style Kirby is now mostly known for. After 30 years with a mostly stagnant viewing angle, the move to 3D for Kirby and the Forgotten Land adds a lot of depth to the presentation you don't realize at first glance. All of Kirby's abilities must look right when viewed from every angle, so classics like Fire, Sword, and Needle have been redesigned from scratch to look and feel right. The animations for both Kirby and his enemies are still relatively simple, but a lot more detail is added so they look believable in 3D space. The game also uses visual features like real-time lighting and shadows to help players know when Kirby is safe to land or to avoid enemy projectile attacks. The camera is another major part of Kirby and the Forgotten Land's presentation. While you can technically move the camera, it's more like a nudge or a suggestion. Much like his 2D games, it generally demonstrates the direction you need to go to make progress. The angle isn't static though. It dynamically moves to highlight major obstacles, tilt around objects that obscure Kirby, and keep you headed in the right direction. This linear progression and suggestion is the last hurdle Kirby needs to float over to become a true 3D platformer. Until then, its developers are making the most of these guardrails while providing a smooth transition between dimensions for longtime fans. Kirby and the Forgotten Land includes a multitude of pre-rendered CGI cutscenes. These elaborate cinematics far outstretch what the Switch is capable of displaying in real-time, but do help fill in the blank spaces the real-time graphics leave behind in our imaginations. In these, the camera gets in close to the characters, which allows you to see minute details like sand on Kirby's face, the fur shading on enemy foxes, or the rust on a car. Even more prevalent are real-time cinematics that use the game's graphics engine. It's yet another case where a low-poly, stylized, cartoony look allows skilled developers to employ some advanced graphical techniques on Switch. Some performance has been sacrificed in the transition to a new dimension. Kirby's most recent 2D console games like Kirby's Return to Dreamland and Kirby Star Allies both lock at 30 frames per second. While most modern 2D platforms aim for 60 frames per second, at least the 30 frames are steady without any drops that could impact play. Kirby and the Forgotten Land targets 30 frames per second, which is typically fine for a 3D platformer, but some of the background elements and the enemies update at half that rate at times. It can be distracting, but it doesn't negatively impact play all that much. The music from Kirby's video games stands the test of time. Not only have themes like Green Greens, King Dedede's theme, and Boarding the Halberd remained staples of the series, a fan remix of the latter has just won a Grammy Award. It's just the second Grammy to be awarded to music from a video game. The versions from Kirby Superstar remain the definitive versions of many of these tracks, and there's a wide variety of tones that are set, whether it's by the calm of bubbly clouds, the intensity of Havoc Aboard the Halberd, or the speed of Gourmet Race. The tone of the tracks from Kirby's Dreamland 3 is less varied, but the songs themselves are still great. Both games use the SNES's sample capabilities to create a deep, layered sound typical of later games on the platform, which helps distinguish each track. 
The sound effects, unfortunately, don't hold up nearly as well, as they are mostly high-pitched squeaks and squeals. Kirby and the Forgotten Land surprisingly stays away from most of the franchise's biggest hits, and instead focuses on its own main theme. It's not bad on its own, but it's remixed and repeated multiple times through the adventure, and gets repetitive. There also isn't much done with the music and the levels themselves. Instead of the MIDI music found in early 3D games from Nintendo on the N64, the publisher has moved on to static tracks that simply play back. This removes a lot of dynamicism from the music since it doesn't rise or fall with the on-screen action. The only way it ever changes on the fly is when the music lowers when you venture into a side area or a new track plays during a minigame. There is some variety in the soundtrack when you get a chance to hear it, including some songs with actual lyrics, which is a rarity for the series. While the Switch still does use cartridges, their capacity is much larger than the SNES or even the Nintendo 64, so compressing the audio to make sure it fits isn't an issue for Kirby and the Forgotten Land. The sound quality is generally great and a huge leap forward from the monotone MIDI sounds of the franchise's earlier games. There's even a surround sound mix, which isn't as common as it should be on Switch. Most video game mascots jump to new dimensions as soon as the technology allows for it. But Kirby has waited over 25 years to make the leap to true 3D. Even then, Kirby and the Forgotten Land provides some caveats. It's mostly linear, you have limited control over the camera, and it lacks true three-dimensional freedom that games like Super Mario 64 employ. However, a large part of the appeal of the Kirby franchise is its accessibility. Generations of fans have been reared on its simple, single-plane gameplay, so Nintendo is trying to provide a smooth transition from one perspective to the next. It makes sense from a business perspective, but it's resulted in a happy middle ground instead of a headfirst dive into its next evolution. A lot of that involves scaling back the gameplay elements, or using technology to provide clues for the player. But the cuts and tweaks are mostly smart, and should keep longtime fans from revolting. We are still hoping Kirby can use his copy abilities to clone fully open 3D platformers in the near future. But until then, The Forgotten Land proves that the series can be great no matter which dimension it takes place in. Thank <laughs> you.